Thanks, Christoph. Hello, everybody. Um, one second there. So, yes, keep, keep, keep your Bibles open, actually. I might want you to refer to chapter 5, especially, because you know, we can't be reading all of it, but um, this, is, this is what we're going to do. Anyway, tonight, we're looking at stories surrounding Deborah and Barak. I'm sure you've heard of them. These uh, uh, events here are actually unique in a number of ways. Firstly, a lot of people remember, remember Deborah um, because she's one of the few female heroes in the Bible, and she rightly gets a lot of attention, not just for what she does, but because she's a woman. This story is also geographically uh, rich. Actually, you can throw up the first slide there. I might as well just leave it up there. Um, it has a lot of action in different places, and those places are named, and... Um, It's not unique in this regard, but it is unique in that most of the places it names are in the north of Israel. And this is the only time actually in the Bible that something that takes place in this area of Israel is given such detail. So it gets a lot of focus from scholars and stuff, and um, that's another thing. And then lastly, this section of Israel's history is unique because it's told twice. Firstly, in chapter 4, we get... As Christoph's just read out to us, typical prose or narrative uh, style story. And then secondly, in chapter 5, we, we get the same events, but they're retold through a song. Right? Some people call it a poetry. Um, it actually says itself that it's a song. It doesn't have the, the structure of a song, but that's what it says. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the whole story by stripping the information out of both chapters. Uh, that is the details from chapter 4 and the kind of theological reflections and some details that we find in the song, and I'm going to put the two of them together and see what we get. So we start off with the usual Book of Judges spiel, where as soon as the last judge has died, um, which was Ehud, remember the lad who could only use his left hand, and he kills the overweight oppressor Eglon by sticking his sword through him. Well, um, Ehud died, and as soon as he was gone, the Israelites were back to their old ways. And I'm going to make a point here, actually, straight away. This is um, indicative of another one of the smaller themes in Judges. And I'll make mention of it here. I'm not sure if we're going to look at it anywhere else. And that is that real and lasting change in behavior needs a true change of heart. A true change of heart. If the Israelites are only ever going to be faithful to God when there's someone there to lead them, What does that say about where their real allegiance lies? Do they only love God when they're told to do so? When there is someone there to show the way? When there is a a fear of social stigma or punishment from the surrounding community if you don't believe and behave accordingly? Now, of course, one of the big things that Judges is pointing us to is that we do need a a better leader. But what I want you to see here is that this book also shows us that if you go back to your old ways, as soon as the pressure to believe comes away from you, your heart was probably never right in the first place. We might look at this, um, well, let me just say that the good news that Jesus brought us tells us that we will be given a new heart, one that has the law written on our hearts. We'll be given a counselor who will guide us into all truth. And if, I mean, if you're someone who's trying to do the right thing, and you keep falling back, keep going back to your old patterns, old sins, 
are, especially when you're out of sight of your Christian friends and family, and you do things that you shouldn't do or don't do things that you should, maybe, maybe, you got this whole Christian thing wrong. Now look, I, I, I know a lot of you, well, I know most of you to a degree. I don't think this applies to, who knows, right? I don't know, I just want, I felt the need to say it tonight. Um, but maybe there is one or two of you here for tonight for whom what I'm saying is, 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 is a, leg, a legitimate thing. The pattern that the Israelites play out here, whenever the pressure to conform is off, they go back to their old sins and habits. Maybe that's a pattern in your life. And what I'm saying is, there is a big difference between trying to be a Christian, because that's what others tell you to do, and trying to be a Christian or live the Christian life because you love the Lord Jesus. The difference is colossal. And if you think that is you, then please, you know, come talk to me or Christoph or, or one of your friends here in the church or the elders and tell them you think you've got it all wrong. Anyway, I, I wanted to say that. Um, the Israelites exposed themselves as soon as this fella Ehud has died. Because very quickly, they were back to their old ways and the influence of surrounding religions was too much for them. And they were back to doing evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And... Uh, I should add that Yahweh is, is the name of God in the Bible. Most English translations use Lord, or they do so, and they do so for a few reasons which I won't get into now. But suffice to say, I, I prefer, if I can at all, using Yahweh. I'm not going to get all stuck up about it, but yeah, I'll, I'll try and use it when I can. And anyway, the Israelites are back to their old ways. We don't know the details of precisely what they did, but we can glean a few things from the two chapters. We know from the song that when the call goes out, if you look at uh, verses, where are we? Verses 13 down to 18, Deborah and Barak sing about all the people who come. And we know from the song that when the call does go out to come and fight, Reuben is more interested in protecting their possessions. Um, and the singers also sing about uh, how some people ride around on their, on their white donkeys. You can so, so, show this picture there. Now, I know that's not a white donkey, um, but actually, this is another one of those ones where I disagree with, or I don't disagree, but all the books I read disagree with the, the NIV that we have in the pews, and it, this is called a tawny donkey. Have you heard of that word, tawny? So apparently, anyway, these tawny donkeys, and uh, the, 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 where, where is this? It's um, somewhere in here. Verse two? No. Ten. Verse ten, tawny donkeys, right? And the, uh, the saddles sitting on your saddle blankets. Apparently, this was like the Maseratis or the Bugattis of the time. Uh, we've come a long way from, from then. But uh, the picture here is painted of an indifferent and irreligious class of businessmen who were swayed more by money than the Lord. Um, there's nothing else that is said explicitly about, what, about this evil that the Israelites did, but certainly we can assume that if they were anything like other times, then worshipping the Canaanite gods was the root of the problem. And then finally, we do know, although it is inference, but a legitimate one nonetheless, that the priests of the time were not doing their job that they were meant to. And the reason we can say this is because when the Israelites call out to Yahweh for help, they go to Deborah, right? And we're told that Deborah lived, if you can drop the next one there. Yes. We're told Deborah lived in this place called the Pam of Deborah, which is somewhere between Ramah and Bethel. Can you see Ramah down the bottom? Can you see Bethel? 
Right, so Deborah lives in this place, Ephraim, in between the two of those. But you see up there, up between the I and the M, there's another place called Shiloh. Okay, good, you see that. Um, well, what I want you to see here is that this, this place, Shiloh, some of you may know what it is, but that's where the Ark of the Covenant was held. This is supposed to be the place where the presence of God dwells, where the priests offer sacrifices so as to satisfy the sins of the nations and the people. But when the Israelites need help from God, is that where they go? No. Instead, they walk right past it, or don't go to it if they come from the other direction. They walk past it, and they go to Deborah instead. The point is that whatever was going on in Israel, it had gotten so bad that even the priests who served before the very presence of God were not immune to it. Everyone who needed real help from God passed by them. It was a damning indictment of the state of the fate of this of the nation at the time. So for all of this treachery, Yahweh gives them into the hands of a man called Jabin, a Canaanite king, who had his uh, throne in a town called Hazor. And this guy um, Jabin had a commander called Sisera, and he lived a little bit away from there in a place called Haroshet Hagoim, and together the two of them cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. That is the second longest period of oppression in the whole book, and it's the only one that's called cruel. So, you know, together these two make a special team. And in the song, we're told something of what this cruel oppression looked like. If you uh, looked in verses 6 and 7, the singer, singers sing of how the roads were abandoned and were clearly dangerous to travel, and instead people traveled the small byways of the hills, Excuse me. It also says that life in the villages of Israel, we're told, almost ceased. And what that exactly means, we're not told, but to say that life in the villages ceased when we know that people were still alive must mean that the regular hustle and bustle, the meeting of friends at the well, the parties for whatever occasion, the festivals that marked the passage of the religious year, all of these would have been stripped away and only the necessary work and wheeling and dealing necessary to put food on the table was all that was left. Not a great picture at all. Imagine Ballyhackmore if all that was left was the bus into town. No restaurants, no pubs, no Tesco, nothing. And even that bus into town would be a dangerous journey. And to top it all off, as is usually the case when a tyrant is in control of people, the people became very poor. And in verse 8, in the song, it says that they couldn't even manage to scrape together a single weapon amongst 40,000 people. So it's not a pretty picture. And all of this causes the Israelites to call out to God once again. And this is when we meet uh, the first woman of the story, Deborah. She's married. Uh, she's a prophet. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that I could find anyway, that highlights any flaws in our character. <clears throat> In fact, she appears in many ways to be a great person and a great lover of God. Uh, It might be a bit presumptuous to call her a judge. Um, She's she's not called that. In the end, she's not the one who rescues them. She she does call herself a mother of Israel, but she doesn't call herself, nor is called by others, the usual terms that the other judges were called. So she is not said to be raised up by Yahweh. She's not called a savior, and she herself says that the Lord would deliver Sisera into other people's hands, not hers. But even if she's not a judge, 
the picture is painted of a virtuous messenger of God who cares deeply for her people and for the Lord. And what happens then is she gets a message from Yahweh and it's for this guy Barak who lives up in the north in a place called Kadesh, which is in the Naphtali tribal area. Can, we, can you see that? Very top Kadesh. Right, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm working out with these uh, slideshows to see if, how we can do with them, but we can leave that one up there for a while. So the message is fairly straightforward, right? Yahweh, the God of Israel, commands you to take 10,000 men from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun and go to Mount Tabor. And if you look there at the map, you'll see that Hazor, that's right, yeah, where Jabin lives, is also in Naphtali, and Zeb- Zebulun is right next to it. So they're all kind of neighbors. And the interesting thing here is that the song also tells us that it wasn't just men from those two tribes that came, but some came from four other tribes as well. Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Benjamin. And again, if you look at the map, um, do you want to try the next one? Right, if you see. So Naphtali is where all the action is. Hazar is up there, Jabin is living up there. And the only tribes that come to them really are Naphtali, Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, and then Ephraim and Benjamin. What I'm trying to say is like, it's really only the people around us that have been affected by and are coming to, to, the, to see action. Um, and it's often the case, I suppose, that with tyrants, the closer you get to their headquarters, the worse the situation is. I met a guy once in Portadown, the first time he crossed the border, the closer he got to Dublin, the more scared he was. But, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but really, and this is one of the key elements of what we need to see here, the response should have been wholehearted from the whole of the Israelites. Instead, six, only six out of the twelve of the land-holding tribes send any help at all. And the two that send the most, Naphtali and Zebulun, are, right, are the two that are right there in the center of all this trouble. Even in the obe- obedience, then, do we see a little bit of self-serving. Perhaps overall, there is a, a little bit of insight in mind, out of sight, out of mind. Whatever the reasons... Or the motivations, the fact remains that much of the Israelites did not respond at all or did so without a full number. And this is all despite the fact that God has spoken. And not only has he spoken, but he has even said that he will lure Sisera out. He will give Sisera into Barak's hands. It's the Lord, it's Yahweh is the chief operator of this account. He's pulling the strings, he's raising the generals, He's deploying armies. He's dictating the strategy. He tells them to go up the mountain. He is affecting the victory. But still, the response is not what you'd expect. And neither is Barak's response. Instead of saying, okay, let's do it. Let's go right now and get this done. He balks. Balks? Balks? B-A-L-K-S. He stalls a little. And he he says to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, there, there might be some thinking behind this, right? Deborah is a prophet of God, and so she speaks the words of God. Brack is a general, and like all generals, he makes decisions based on the best advice and the wisdom that's available to him. It could be, maybe, that uh, he's thinking, you know, 
this is a, uh, Deborah is a prophet of God, and so she speaks the words of God, and I, it would be good for me to have her with me. It could also be that he's treating her as some sort of good luck charm. The thinking is that if she is a, a woman of God and she's greatly blessed by God, to have her in my presence would be a benefit to me. But whatever, whether it's the common sense approach or some sort of religious superstition that motivates him to ask her to come along, the end result is that his doubts get the better of him. He hears the message of God, clearly hears it, but he hesitates. And in response, we have part of this story that is fairly well known. Well, maybe not. I, I, I certainly heard of it. But Barak is told that the glory will go to a woman instead of him. Now, at this point, the listeners to this story, or the early readers, are thinking, ah, yes, Deborah's going to do something amazing soon, right? She's going to get the glory. But she doesn't. Instead, it goes to another woman. And before we get there, though, there is the battle scene. Deborah agrees very graciously to go with Barak back to his hometown um, and all the men joining him I think of one more map actually do I? one more map there you go yes um, in the meantime Sisera has moved his men he's gathered all his men from around the area and they hear that Barak and his guys are on Mount Tabor can you see Mount Tabor? yes it's actually it's the little dot on top of the M that's Mount Tabor um, I, I was there a couple of years ago. It's lovely. Um, before they head off, well, sister hears that Barak and his guys are there on Mount Tabor. And before they head off, Deborah reminds Barak that this is the day that the Lord has given sister into your hands. And with these words in, in their ears, they begin to march to war. Now, this whole area is a valley. Um, as I was saying, I was there about two years ago myself. I, I stood. Can, can you make out that map? Is that, yeah? Okay. So I stood maybe uh, on the left-hand side of the valley looking across it. It was, uh, it was actually the best moment of, of my time there, I have to say. Um, so you, but the thing is, right, you can be absolutely sure that when these guys are marching down there and the text says that Sisera is coming from the other direction, they're going to see each other for a long time before they meet each other. Um, and the song gives us a few, a few important details here. Firstly, it tells us that it was at Tanakh that they fought. So down there, I think it's just above the H, this is where they actually met eventually. And um, then in verse 19, we're told that the river Kishon swept them away. Now, this river is tiny. I don't know if you can see it. It's a little blue line going through the, the, the valley. And when I was there, it was tiny as well. So the thinking by most people is that as soon as the battle started, the Lord brought a flood by using this river. This is verse 19. And the ensuing chaos of 900 iron chariots being suddenly caught in the rising mud is enough to spook the men of Sisera and no doubt to encourage the Israelites. And in shock, Sisera's men, including Sisera himself, abandoned their chariots and every last one of them was hunted down and killed. Except for one. Sisera. And whereas his men fled back to where they came from and were hunted down to the last man, Sisera heads in the other direction. He starts going probably maybe towards Hazar, where his king is, and he would expect safe haven. But along the way, he meets this lady, I'm going to say Jael, or Jael, Jael, in uh, this 
Zaanim place. Zaanim. You can see it there on the map. And who is she? Well, she is a descendant of Moses, Moses' father-in-law, who came along with the Israelites to the promised land. And she's married to this guy, Heber, who apparently leaves his own clan and moves north for reasons we don't know. And that's all we know. This uh, previously Gentile person is now in God's community and she's about to become very famous. And in another typical judge's gruesome story, of which there seems to be one every week, she tricks him into coming into her tent. And when he's asleep, when he's asleep, drives a tent peg through his skull. There ends the life of Sister of the General by this unknown woman. I suppose you could be tempted maybe to feel sorry for the guy having to die in such a fashion, but there's actually a little detail at the very end of Deborah's song. Uh, uh, it's verse, sorry, verse 28 onwards. And it says, and I suppose this, you could say this softens the blow if, if you want to do it like that. And this image is painted of sister's mother waiting for her son, wondering where is he? And in response, her servants tell her, well, he's probably off taking his share of the spoils. But the spoils in this case are women. And you need to know that the word for women uh, here is not the usual one that refers to women, but it's literally actually wombs. So sister's mother and her servants, they're not feminists. They don't have much empathy for the suffering of their fellow woman in the opposition camp, seeing them not as women, but as pieces of flesh with which the son will do what wicked men have done to women since the fall. So if you have any sympathy at all for Sistera, may I suggest that he got what he deserved. The last scene then is Barak coming upon Jael's tent and finding the dead Sistera in there. And what I wouldn't give to see the look in his face when he was told that Sistera was inside and him going in all ready for action thinking he was probably going to find him asleep or drunk, or at a stretch tied up, but certainly not pinned to the ground with a piece of wood through his skull. Chapter 4 then, and indeed the whole story, um, ends after this, with these words. God subdued Jabin that day before the Israelites, and they grew stronger against him until he was destroyed. Let me say that again. God subdued Jabin that day before the Israelites and they grew stronger and stronger against him until he was destroyed. In many ways, actually, well, in many ways, this last line is the key to one of the main points of this whole story. And the issue is God's sovereignty. Predestination, if you like. And let me be clear. Deborah, in particular, sometimes... And sometimes jail gets a lot of attention in this story. I think that's entirely wrong-headed. Sometimes Barak gets attention too. And that is just as wrong-headed. We have this tendency to heroize, heroize, heroize the characters of the Old Testament. And for sure, we should look to imitate Deborah, particularly out of the story. But really, what she did was, she had faith in God and she was obedient to what he put her to do. I mean, I'm not saying that's easy, right? But that's the basic command for all of us. It was the basic command for the Israelites. It's the basic command for you and I every day. It's a basic command for Deborah. And as far as I can tell, she was often faithful to us. 
The same goes for all the other heroes of our faith. They should command our respect, not for as people who we should look to, but as people who point us to what made them have such faith. In other words, God. Their faith is not what makes them special, but the object of their faith. The Lord is the true hero of this story. And of course, you, you could say that, you could say that, properly say that, about every book in the Bible, every story in the Bible. God is the true hero. But here, in these chapters, it is made abundantly clear because repeatedly what we hear is that Yahweh is making these things happen. And as I said before, he's the one pulling the strings the whole way along the story. The sovereignty of God and his complete control over all aspects of our life, it it used to be something the Presbyterians were uh, in particular known for. But for reasons I'm, well, I could make a guess, reasons I'm not sure about, I think um, we don't talk about it as much. But it's in there. Isaiah 46.10 says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. I suspect one of the main reasons we don't talk about it is because it's deeply offensive to our modern ears where we value our independence and our freedom to make choice beyond nearly everything else. And this is ironic and sad for two reasons. Firstly, because even though God is in complete control, Scripture is quite clear our choices have effects, our choices matter. We're not fatalists who say that our choices do not matter or do not have any bearing on what happens in the future. No, 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 no. That's not the message of God. Secondly, and this is what we see reflected in the last few words of chapter 4, to drink deep of the assurance that God is in control, that he is orchestrating it all, is to become freer and freer and braver and braver. When the Israelites saw that it was God who was subduing Jabin before them, they got stronger and stronger. These two chapters are not really about battles between two groups of people or differing kings or even between Israelites and Canaanites. It's really between God and his kingdom and his people and the forces of darkness and evil. And God always wins because he's in control of the whole thing. He's even in control of the enemies. Now I know another reason why we don't talk about God predestining events is because it brings up a whole heap of questions for those of us who have suffered or are, or are suffering. But I'm not going there tonight. Because what I've said is, is still true. We know, because of Jesus and what he did for us, that this same God who's in control of everything loves us completely. Now, Christoph said this morning that when a Christian walks into a room, it should become a better place. Do you know why that's true? Because when the Christian walks into that room, God has just walked in with them. So that means that the being upon whom the entire universe depends upon for existence, the being upon whom all events that have or ever will happen find their cause in, has just entered that room with that very same person. And he loves that person. So who knows what could happen? And, you know, even if nothing happens, he still loves you, he's still in control. And he's going to make everything out. 
everything work out for the good eventually. That's it.